Hey guys, welcome to the Abe Summer Series, a nine-episode series dedicated to energy and recovery. I'm your host, Paula Glover, President and CEO of the American Association of Blacks and Energy. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. For all things Abe, visit us at aabe.org and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Today, we have with us three phenomenal speakers and actually a really wonderful moderator. So I want to share a little bit about them with you. First, we have Ms. Shannon Pierce. Shannon is the Vice President Operations for NICOR Gas, Illinois' largest natural gas distributor and owner and operator of one of the largest natural gas aquifer storage systems in North America, delivering natural gas to 2.2 million residential, public sector, and business customers in more than 650 communities throughout Northern Illinois. Shannon is responsible for providing strategic leadership and direction for the company's natural gas operations, including field service and distribution. Since joining Southern Company Gas in 2004 as regulatory counsel for the company's legal activities with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, Shannon has held additional leadership roles with increasing responsibility. Please, let's give a virtual welcome to Ms. Shannon Pierce. Next, we have Mr. Kenneth Mercado. Kenny, Mercado is the Senior Vice President of Electric Operations, Technology Operations, and Chief Integration Officer for Centerpoint Energy. Um, and he is a more than 34-year veteran of Centerpoint Energy and its pre predecessor companies, 34 years. In this role, he is responsible for leading electric transmission, distribution, electric engineering, and power delivery solutions in the greater Houston area, as well as corporate safety and technical training. Kenny also oversees customer and business technology, infrastructure and competitive services, operational technology and markets groups in the technology operations organization. In addition, he continues to lead Centerpoint Energy and Vectran Corporation's integration implementation into one company, Centerpoint Energy. This includes process improvement, change leadership, the technology integration management office and strategic sourcing and purchasing. Prior to this role, Kenny was Centerpoint Energy's integration co-lead with Vectran. Before that, he had financial and operational responsibility of the company's electric utility, which consists of a 5,000 square mile service territory and power delivery to homes and businesses in the Houston metropolitan area. He also led the deployment of the company's smart grid system, which includes the installation of smart meters and intelligent grid technology. Please let's give a virtual welcome to Mr. Kenny Mercado. Next, we have Myrtle Jones. Myrtle L. Jones is Halliburton's Senior Vice President of Tax. Based in Houston, Texas, she has more than 30 years of experience in international and domestic tax compliance and strategic tax planning. Before joining Halliburton in this role in 2013, Ms. Jones served as Senior Managing Director of Tax and Internal Audit for Service Corporation International, SCI, in Houston. In her role as the Chief Tax Officer for SCI, she managed all aspects of federal, foreign, and state income taxes, sales and use taxes, property taxes, accounting for income tax, tax audits, and tax planning. Prior to joining SCI in 2008, Ms. Jones was Vice President of Tax for Global Santa Fe Corporation, where she was responsible for developing and implementing worldwide tax planning strategies, tax risk management, and income tax reporting. She joined Global Marine, Global Santa Fe's pre predecessor company 
1986 and held numerous positions leading to vice president in 2006. Ms. Jones participated on the teams that integrated the tax structures and operations of Global Marine and Santa Fe after their merger in 2001 and of Transocean and Global Santa Fe after their merger in 2007, their merger in 2007, excuse me. And finally, our moderator today is Mr. Brian Dabbs. He is the Energy and Environment Policy Reporter at National Journal. Previously, he covered the same topics as at Bloomberg BNA. Prior to that, Brian reported on US trade policy and corresponded from East and North Africa. He has a bachelor's degree from Western State Colorado University and a master's in journalism from Georgetown. Brian grew up near Annapolis, Maryland. And please let's give a warm virtual welcome to Brian Dabbs, our moderator. One bit of housekeeping for everyone who's joined us today. If you have a question, please don't hesitate to put it in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. Next to that Q&A box, you will see a chat box. Please do not put your questions in a chat box because our speakers and our will not see that. Put it in the Q&A box. But if you would like to chat with one another, something that has been said is of interest, maybe there's a follow-up topic that you'd like the association to bring in more speakers to address, the chat box is absolutely where you want to put that information. And with that, I turn it over to you, Brian, and look forward to a really wonderful conversation. Well, thanks so much, Paula, and thank you uh, so much for inviting me to moderate this, and I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. And uh, the panel um, is, is filled with esteemed people here that should be able to really shed some, um, some serious uh, light on recent developments and, and, and broader trends in, in the energy industry right now. Um, so I think we should kick it off with, uh, with the thing looming over us, the thing that's top of mind for all of us right now, which is obviously the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Um, obviously, it's, it's infiltrated all of our lives in some fashion or another and really upended energy markets in a number of ways. Um, I, I really would just like to kind of um, bounce these two questions off off all the panelists and just um, feel free to answer in any way you see fit. But I just, uh, you know, would like to know what is the impact that coronavirus has has had so far on your uh, business and, and, and how do you anticipate the, the pandemic continuing to to impact uh, energy infrastructure build out that's you know needed to improve distribution domestically and, and energy trade as well. Um, and you know, it, two of our panelists are, are located in Houston where numbers are rising, and I don't know if that's if that's impacting some type of protocols that you all have from a from a business and industry standpoint. So, uh, Andrew, right. Shannon, would you like to go first? Uh, sure. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'll just start by saying as a company, Southern Company, and in particular, um, Southern Company Gas, um, where I work, we never closed. Um, how COVID impacted us is that, you know, we of course had to adapt our operations. Um, you know, we have employees who, because of the nature of our business, we actually have to enter homes to provide service to our customers and respond to emergencies. And so because of that, we had to adapt um, our operations and making sure that we had the right amount, the right PPE 
um, for our employees to make sure that they feel safe and protected along with making sure that our customers feel safe and protected. And so from a COVID perspective, for us, it was really around how do we adapt our operations to make sure that we do not have an interruption in service to our customers. Um, from a infrastructure standpoint, um, this is not the first time of uncertainty and things happening beyond our control. Certainly COVID-19 is unprecedented in terms of our lifetime and what we're experiencing, but in life and in business, things happen beyond our control. Um, for us, we have to continue to stay proactive in building strong financial and regulatory mechanisms so that we can endure, keep investing, and continuing to be a strong and healthy utility. I mean, we've endured the client use per customer over 20 years ago, the housing crisis of 2008. We had a realization that, that we had uh, traditional rate making mechanisms that didn't quite apply to our need to accelerate our investment in infrastructure. So we had to adapt that way. The Tax Cuts and Job Act also had an impact on us, even though there was benefits to customers and to companies from a utility perspective, um, we had some cash flow impact that we had to address. And so now we're in COVID-19. Um, and again, we've been able to build a regulatory program that has allowed us to in, um, have tariffs, um, riders, and legislation that allow us to have a financial mechanism um, to um, deploy infrastructure and not um, have a lot of concern with the crisis that's in front of us. Thank you very much. Uh, Kenny, would you like to go? Very similar to uh, Shannon, we, we run the electric grid that serves uh, the greater Houston area. We've got a population of close to six, six and a half million people. Um, it's an oil and, oil and gas industry here in Houston. So you have the economy uh, impacts associated with uh, you know, the declining prices of the commodity prices of oil. Um, our business is very similar to Shannon. We have, uh, we have adapted um, to the Im impacts of the coronavirus and immediately working for home has been, uh, was an easy transition, a very seamless transition. Still today, we probably have 4,000 employees across eight states that uh, operate our grids. We have natural gas uh, distribution grid and also our electric grid and our employees continue to work very well uh, in remote conditions within their house and uh, with their families and doing the best that they can and we're we're actually having a very solid year overall I think for the most part we're we're on track to, to meet our capital budgets we're continuing to do to do what we need to serve uh, the needs of our greater Houston uh, economy meeting the needs of our of our customers we still have been growing um, even during even throughout the, the coronavirus we've been growing and we've been serving our growth um, we continue to modernize our grid to try to improve the reliability and the resiliency of our systems uh, technology continues to be sort of the leading edge of who we are and, and the direction that we're headed and we're very blessed to have a, a technology enterprise environment that allows us to be secure, but also, um, you know, continuing to pursue the, the, the edge of our, of, our, of our systems to get more value for our customers. And um, so here today, you know, we're, I'm in downtown Houston in my office and it's, it's still empty. And I think most, 
metropolitan areas across the country are, are empty. Um, and it's, it's just, it, to me, it's, it's amazing that we're able to work in, in, and support our, our companies, uh, and still achieve our, 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 our company objectives, uh, and still meet the needs of our, of our communities. Uh, we have a, a very large budget, uh, on, on our capital and, uh, our, our guys are able to work uh, in the field. Our, you know, our employees are doing their jobs out in the field. Our contractors are doing their jobs in the field. We're working safely. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that the coronavirus has started to raise its uh, level of, of, of um, spread in the Houston area, and that is true. Uh, Texas is starting to see a rise in cases. Uh, over the last four weeks, we've seen an increase uh, in, uh, in cases. And and it is starting to cause us a little bit of concern. Um, we, but we've been concerned about it the whole time. So it's not, we're not changing anything. We're just wanting to stay committed to our practices to protect our, our employees, to monitor their health. Um, and the, the issue really is when, when you have a case, it's, it's how many other people that are affected by that, that, that case that can cause a, a, a little bit more of a disruption in, in your ability to serve. And, and meet your needs out in the field. So for us, one case might result in 10 to 12 people that could be impacted if they're working in the field. Now, if they're working from home, that's a whole different situation. And most of our cases today are not coming uh, within the workplace. They're coming from the home place. People are getting, uh, the, the sp spread is coming from the home and then, and then that individual may be uh, affecting others in the workplace. And I think that's what we're seeing is a larger cause now, and more of it's in the in is in the demographics of twenties uh, and thirties. The younger generation is really creating more of the the rise uh, currently than than we've seen in the in the months of uh, March and, and April and May. So, yeah, the numbers are much bigger in the month of June for us, much bigger in the month of June compared to the first three months. So yeah, we're cautiously watching, monitoring our our workforce and trying to stay ahead of the head of the game as we get ready for the, the summertime uh, uh, months that are, that are come that are going to be very busy in, in our environment. Gotcha. Thank you. And, and Myrtle, you're also in, in Houston. What's your experience been so far? Well, we, we are based in Houston, uh, but Halliburton is a, is an oil field services company. Uh, so we're global. We operate in about 70 countries around the world. Uh, the impact of COVID, you know, we felt it in all of those uh, locations in terms of just a number of things. So if you talk about uh, capital spending, Halliburton spends capital based upon uh, the needs of its customers, meaning, you know, the independent and national oil companies. Um, the work that they have for us dictates what we spend in terms of capital spending. Well, COVID driving the demand for oil and gas down as coupled with the, the, the actions of Saudi Arabia and Russia in terms of, you know, uh, basically not necessarily flooding the market with oil, but lowering their prices to such an extent, combining that with COVID uh, impacted our business tremendously, particularly in North America. Um, Halliburton is uh, the largest oil field services company that is in the hydraulic fracturing play. And basically the cost of extracting a barrel of oil or gas uh, from fracturing in North America 
uh, is significantly higher than pop pumping oil in Saudi Arabia. So basically, that has caused a historic drop in the number of active uh, uh, rigs in North America. And when you have that drop, that means that we lay off a lot of people in capital spending for North America. There's basically no need for it. It has driven us to lay up, idle a lot of equipment, uh, book in Q1. We recorded a little bit over a billion dollars uh, impairments uh, towards capital that we already had on the books. Um, so our, our journey with the aftermath of COVID, as well as with the actions of the Saudi Arabia and Russia, is, is far from over in terms of when we will be dealing with what we would call a recovery. And by the way, this is a second downturn in the uh, oil and gas business, the fossil fuel business, in less than 10 years. We already experienced this back in 2015 and 2016. So as we were coming out of that downturn and things started to look a lot rosier, you know, we got hit with the second wave of it. Just in terms of the work environment, um, here in Houston, we had furloughs back in March, which was like uh, almost uh, with very little notice going in. Uh, we furloughed uh, pretty much our entire staff at uh, on the North Belt campus here in Houston with people working uh, one week on and one week off. And then right on the heels of the furlough, we uh, laid off an additional 1,000 people in North America. So couple that with working from home, Halliburton has never had a culture that encouraged or supported uh, work from home and flex, workable, flex uh, work schedules. So in the midst of all this change, the company has made a complete 180 degree turn and now they have offered uh, work from home to pretty much the entire workforce on a go forward basis. Um, the campus opened up a little over two weeks ago to 25% occupancy. Um, I've been there. It is far less than 25% occupancy because even though it is open to that number of people, uh, they're being very understanding about uh, people continuing to work from home. It's amazing because we always had the technology. I mean, we had Skype, we had Microsoft Teams, we had all of these collaboration tools. And uh, fortunately, for the most part, we have a workforce that has uh, adapted to those uh, technologies and actually appreciates having the opportunity to have a work from home schedule. You will see us over across the United States now um, basically realizing that we have a lot of office space that we no longer need. Uh, so we are consolidating offices across the United States. We'll probably be selling off uh, real estate and so on and so forth. And this is also what we're hearing across the entire spectrum of, of our industry of people in the, in the energy business really rethinking their whole mentality around flexible work schedules and really uh, coming to understand and appreciate the power of the collaboration tools, but we're also grappling with how to balance that with maintaining an engaged workforce. So uh, you, I think there's just a lot of, lot of work that's still to be done, uh, but uh, if anything positive has come out of this, it has been uh, 
uh, allowing our, our employees around the world to have a bit more flexibility, you know, in their work schedules, which is welcome. But I think that the 100% work from home is something that is not welcome. So at some point, we need to find, you know, we, we got to find some balance in the whole thing. So it's been a yeah. challenge. It's been a challenge. Continues. I think yeah. we're all going through a transformation. There'll probably be some staying power with this um, with stay-at-home culture. And, you know, personally, I'm, I'm um, surprised and pleased with how productive I've been from home. And I also don't like putting on a suit every day in the summer when it's 100 degrees in D.C. So I um, can appreciate some of that. But uh, Myrtle, I want to stick with you. So there is a lot of discussion about consolidation in the industry. There's been companies that have gone belly up. Um, from not sure exactly how this fits with your vantage point as the tax um, expert there and and, um, and top player within Halliburton, but can you speak about whether from an upstream standpoint, um, whether Halliburton will be um, merging with with other companies or or anything really in that in that kind of realm of discussion? I mean, I, I am involved uh, in, you know, in, in those types of discussions because, you know, tax touches everything and we're usually a major uh, uh, participant in any type of uh, M&A uh, activity. I would say that right now, there's not, uh, at least that I'm aware of, there's really not a lot of talk about, there's really not anything going on in the M&A space. What is happening is, is that some of the smaller players uh, in this, uh, there's huge fragmentation in OFO services, let's just be clear. And there have been a lot of competition for the hydraulic fracturing uh, work and that has driven pricing and uh, to look to in, in, in all other types of things in this area. So a lot of companies are, yeah, they're, they're not gonna make it. Um, there's the, 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 it used to be fueled by there was access to cash uh, for those smaller operators, for the smaller oilfield services companies, for the smaller oil and gas operators. What we're hearing is, is that that money just isn't there anymore. So where they may have been able to go out to get financing, uh, to continue to drilling, uh, you know, to continue investing, you know, in, in, in their oil and gas plays, that money is drying up and the bankers are taking a very different uh, approach to how they're thinking about dealing with this because in the past, they would not have wanted to actually take over those oil and gas properties, you know, that they have financed, but now there is some thought that they will actually become operators at least for a while because right now the price that they can get if they go out to try to sell that off it, it's just not it doesn't make any sense right now and so you have some of the uh the bankers saying you know what we're just gonna we're just gonna hold on to these properties for a while and maybe we'll reach out to companies you know like Halliburton and what have you and, ha and, and, and maybe we're not the best ones maybe there are other types of sectors within this business but have them operate these businesses for us until it becomes economical and they can rec recoup some of the capital that they've been investing in this business for the past you know, decade or so. So that, that's what we're seeing. But I think that they're willing to just kind of let you know, uh, the natural order play out and, and, and let some of these companies uh, you know, 
continue to, as you've already seen, uh, file for bankruptcy and go out of business. And they're just going to, and I think there's just going to be a, a lot more capital discipline around those types of um, activities. And that's what we're seeing right now. Okay, thanks for that. Um, there was a question um, related to COVID um, impacts on sales. And I want to encourage everybody to ask your questions in the Q&A box, not the chat box. Um, if you ask it in the chat box, you probably will get in trouble with Paula. And I wouldn't want to be there because she seems tough. So I did want to ask Shannon and Kenny if you have seen any impact on on uh, sales, there's obviously been less industrial and commercial use of, of energy because of what we've been discussing here in terms of working from home. There's also been a lot of state moratoria on utility shutoffs. I'm not sure if that's hurting your bottom line. Um, I'll go first, um, Ken. So in terms of um, the demand for natural gas from a utility perspective, um, as a gas utility, our um, company, um, our margins are driven highly by the demand of the residential market. So while there is some impact from a CNI perspective, um, it's not astronomical because of the um, residential demand that largely drives um, our margins. Also, um, I talked about you know having a strong foundation of regulatory mechanisms um, years ago um, across. Um, our gas utilities, we decoupled rates and have um, regulatory mechanisms that allow our rate structure not to be um, dependent upon volumetric um, usage. And so because of that, um, we are um, more agnostic uh, from a revenue standpoint um, because of those mechanisms that we put in place. Okay. Yeah, and uh, on the electric side, Brian, um, in, at least in the greater Houston area, we, we, we study the, the usage very, very closely. We have a lot of deep data uh, to analyze our, our usage patterns. Uh, and, and there's really no surprises here as, as, the, as the employee or the workforce has moved out of their commercial facilities and they've moved home. Two things have happened that are very obvious. One is that we've seen a, a sort of an, a natural decline in small, medium-sized commercial usage. Um, and and in, that has, has improved over the, the months. So it's probably worse in the late March, uh, middle April timeframe. And the usage decline was in the neighborhood of 10, 10 plus percent, maybe even up to 15% in, in terms of decline in, in electric usage. Um, but that was offset by uh, a rise in residential usage um, which has been in the neighborhood of maybe five to six percent, maybe seven percent of increased usage on our in our in our residential load. So when you net the two, we've seen a a a a moderate decline overall in in usage uh, for just that period of time where COVID has has been uh, our our number one emphasis. That's just in the months of March, April, and May, and now into June. So it has resulted in some reduced sales overall. Um, it's a little complicated to say, you know, how much is it because there's weather is always a factor. You know, you have hot weather, you have mild weather, you have rain, and you have a lot of uh, other factors. 
but all things equal, and when you try to look at it on an apple to apples basis, 2019 to 2020, we've seen just a we've seen a, a, a slight decline in sales uh, driven by the the commercial reduction in usage uh, in our service area that I think is probably not uncommon uh, in other markets across the country, um, and so. You know, we're we're managing it. It's not uh, it's it's not it's not significant. We're managing it. It's but uh, it's something we're continuing to monitor very closely. We we've made some assumptions that that it will stop by August timeframe. We we made that assumption a couple months ago that we'd get back to a normal for the for you know maybe for the latter part of 2020. Well, we all know today, Shannon Myrtle with Brian. We all know today that we're living the new normal now, and we're not going to go back anytime soon. So we're we're resharpening our, our pencils and studying our, our estimates, and we would anticipate to see a little bit more decline uh, for the rest of this year, but we, we're, we're monitoring it closely overall. If, if I could just ask you a quick follow-up um, on that. So the, obviously Houston has bore the brunt of some serious storms in, in recent mm -hmm. years. Uh, we're now entering hurricane season, it seems like, not not every year is are hurricanes worse, but over the past decade, for instance, there's been a lot of very bad storms, and, and NOAA does predict that this year um, will feature quite a few storms. And I wonder if uh, coronavirus uh, will impact somehow your distribution or your company's ability to be resilient in the face of storms. Yeah, I mean that's that's our job, Brian. That's that's what we do. We and, and so we're thinking about it all the time. We're we're, we're a well-planned organization. We plan months and months ahead. Uh, so I give you an example. Normally, we, you know, I've lived through Hurricane Ike back in uh, 2007, 2008, and Hurricane Harvey uh, a few years back, and led our restoration and recovery from both of those big events. And in those days, we would bring in crews to support us, uh, 5,000, 6,000, 10,000 what we call mutual assistance and contract crews that support us because you can't rebuild your infrastructure quickly when you have significant damage and you need a lot of resources to help you out. So we would use staging sites. We would stage uh, physical locations that we would actually um, go out and, and loan. We, we, we would uh, uh, you know rent those sites and we would stage them with equipment and uh, tents and food and all the all the stuff needed to support uh, work workers who come in from outside, and with the Corona, what the, the biggest thing you have to do with Corona is you got to you got to keep the separation, so you got to protect every every foreign mutual crews from from other crews. So what we're doing is just spreading ourselves out even further and further. We're trying to spread our resources. We're, we we plan for thirty to forty different sites now, smaller micro sites. Uh, and, and in addition to having these micro sites, we're also um, trying to do as much as we can virtually, just like we're doing today. We're all on this call together in a virtual site. So our command centers and the way we check you in and we go through our safety routines and teach you about our service territory, we can do a lot of that virtually now. And so we don't have to come in contact. So the, the more we can do less contact and stay focused on, on our processes and our discipline around restoring power, we think we're going to be fine. We think we're going to be well prepared. We 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 work very closely with the utilities all across the southeast of the United States and all across the Atlantic 
coast of the United States. We're all in it together. We work as a collaborative uh, group. And if anybody needs help, we're all here to help the other utilities and, and their customers. Uh, and so we'll be well prepared this summer uh, for an event, whether it hits the Atlantic coast and I have to send crews to North Carolina or Florida or someplace and uh, the vice versa, they'll help us if, if something hits the Texas coast or the Louisiana coast. Um, so we're, we're, we're thinking ahead, we're well prepared uh, and we're also hopeful that hurricanes will leave us alone. So I, I'm gonna leave it there. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I think we're all hopeful of that and, and best of luck down there. And, and I would imagine there's a bunch of people on the call from Texas. So hope everybody stays safe. And, and also out West, uh, the wildfire seasons are, are supposed to be uh, oh, yeah. worse than normal. So when there's obviously some issues with, um, with electricity distribution um, on, on that front as well. I wanna ask one more policy and regulatory question and then go on a little bit to office um, culture and diversity. And there's been a few questions um, as it relates to that. Uh, Myrtle, there, the, there's obviously been a number of coronavirus uh, packages that have passed Capitol Hill and, and um, passed both houses of, of Congress and, and, and been signed into law. There's a big infrastructure package, 1.5 trillion that, um, that House Democrats are um, moving towards passing now. It has a lot of energy provisions, including uh, tax credit extensions for um, both renewable energy and carbon sequestration. I wonder if you could talk about the impact that they, that may have on on um, the industry and and and, the, and potentially even the if you could comment on the energy transition and whether or not Halliburton um, has designs on that at some point in the in the in the coming future, not necessarily imminently. The the latest package um, related to the. Um, coronavirus and the recovery and as well as the infrastructure packages, as you'll see, they lean heavily towards incentives for alternative uh, sources of fuel um, and, and, and certainly away from anything related to fossil fuel. And I think that when you have something that large happening, it could just potentially, it marries up with what the desires I think of a lot of uh, people in this world towards, you know, wanting to move away from uh, dependency, dependency upon fossil fuel. And some of these incentives could uh, help accelerate some of those initiatives, which as we know, uh, becoming completely independent of fossil fuels is something that is going to take a very, very long time uh, for the world to be able to do. So in the meantime, you know, we have to find ways to, um, you know, re reduce carbon emissions. And that's why one of the more interesting aspects of the package, at least for a company like Halliburton, would be uh, the incentives around carbon capture. So if you're going to continue to have fossil fuels and you're going to continue to emit CO2, you know, into the atmosphere, uh, are there ways to to capture that and what incentives are the government willing to put out there to do that? And it seems from the way the bills are moving that there is a desire or willingness on the part of the government to incentivize 
uh, companies through the tax code uh, to explore that. I, I believe is it, that it that is uh, things we've seen companies in the past that used to be big companies that you thought never would go away uh, go away. You know, you, the Kodak camera, and obviously um, there is potential that uh, in the fossil fuel industry, you know, if we're not a part of, and it's just my own personal philosophy, you know, you, you want to be a part of the solution and not just the problem. And Halliburton and other companies, uh, you know, in this space are looking for opportunities for them to, for us to be a part of the problem. We've been around for a little over, we celebrated our hundred year anniversary last year. And if we're going to be around for another hundred years, uh, we're going to have to uh, figure out, you know, where our place will be uh, in that. Um, we here in Houston, uh, you, I don't know if you've heard, but those here, we just opened up a completely new incubator, you know, in the city of Houston, not Halliburton, an incubator uh, to, uh, to, to, you know, energy incubator to incubate businesses that would be uh, developing uh, green solutions. You know, at Halliburton, we are looking at doing something similar to look so that we can have a, a look at what technologies are emerging that we might be able to be a part of. There's been some conversations along that line. But yeah, there's a definitely uh, uh, a, a realization that we are going to have to adapt and, and adjust uh, to be a part of the energy conversation of the future because the world is always going to need energy and uh, right now that primary source is fossil fuel and if it's not going to be uh, we want to be a part of what that we want to be a part of that as well um, there there is very little uh, support in Washington on Capitol Hill for incentives that are specific to the fossil fuel industry it is a very it's a political uh, um, you know, we're, we're not going to get it directly, you know, politically is very, very, uh, you know, hostile type environment, you know, for the uh, fossil fuel industry uh, on, on, on Capitol Hill. So I wanted to, I don't expect to see anything out of the CARES package, out of the infrastructure package that would be supporting uh, the fossil fuel industry at all, but definitely I would expect to see, and as there is an infrastructure bill, even more legislation and incentives that are supporting, uh, you know, green energy and alternative uh, sources of fuel. Okay, thank you. Um, so I want to pivot to um, company company culture, hiring practices, diversity. Um, you are all in the highest tier of your company, so I would imagine you're you're you know involved directly with hiring on a on a on a regular basis. Um, right now, there are protests uh, across the country in, in all virtually all major cities. Um, I think I had heard recently that there was protests in every state in the country um, related to police brutality. Um, systematic, um, systematic um, oppression of, 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 of black and, my, and minority communities. Can you all talk about diversity in your workplaces and how this experience over the past couple months has impacted uh, decisions in terms of, you know, increasing diversity or um, any other kind of related uh, company policy? Uh, Shannon, could you start, please? 
Certainly. So I'll start by saying that um, recent events with the murders of um, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery um, wasn't the start of Southern Company's commitment around um, diversity and inclusion and having conversations. I will say that um, we are being more intentional about having conversations around race in particular. Um, and we have um, had several forums um, throughout the enterprise with employees and leaders to talk about race, racism, and social injustice. Um, but again, in terms of our overall diversity and inclusion program, uh, we have a long history around our commitment in our communities, but also to our employees about making sure that we are all, you know, not only represent representationally diverse, but also have an environment of inclusiveness where our employees can grow and thrive and develop. Um, in terms of the current environment from a COVID perspective, um, what we've been challenged with is how do we continue to make sure that we stay engaged with our employees and leaders to make sure that we continue this inclusive environment that we are cultivating. And so we've had to be creative. Um, we're working very closely with our DNI leaders to make sure that we have programming and that we keep conversations going. Obviously, when you're talking about um, things like race in particular, where there's already um, a lack of comfort by many folks to talk about those kind of things at work, and then you layer on top of that that we can't do it in purpose uh, in person. Um, how do we create an environment that's still safe for folks to um, have conversations? And so what we decided to do was we decided not to let COVID be our barrier. We decided that just because we can't have conversations in person doesn't mean we can't utilize technology to make sure that we are addressing issues and having conversations um, right now in the moment because we committed as a leadership team that we're not going to let this moment pass us, even though this is not the first time in history where we've seen this happen um, to black people and minorities. Um, for some reason right now, this is the time that the nation has paused and said, we're going to talk about this right now. And so we've decided we're not going to lose sight of that opportunity um, to continue to advance social um, injustice um, to combat social injustice, but also to have conversation inside just because we can't gather um, in place in person. Penny? Yeah, very similar to Shannon. I just had a, a, a leadership meeting with, I've got about 160 leaders in my organization. And uh, we, you know, we were talking about this topic as top of mind, as a critical success factor for where we are today and as we continue to think about who we want to be in the future. I think Myrtle said it earlier so well, we won't be, a, we won't be in existence if we don't get it right. Uh, it, and it's not just fossil fuel or technology. It is, it, th this is the top topic for us and we, we have to get it right. We're, we're, we're sitting on, a, uh, on an opportunity, a very rare and unique opportunity to make a significant change uh, within our company, but with the, you know, on a much larger scale for many companies across our country. And um, I, I've, I believe personally that this is the, this is the, the time is, is, is right. We, we can no longer sit back and be silent. We have to be active. We have to be engaged. Uh, what, we're, what we're trying to do right now is listen, understand, um, 
you know, demonstrate this, this passion behind what we're seeing today uh, and, and make it, make it leader led and employee owned as a grassroots approach. It's not coming, going to come from our human resource department. It's not going to come from, you know, one individual. It is going to be embraced in every decision that is made uh, across the enterprise and however, however you think about the business. So, uh, and, and in, in, if, if it's done well, you won't rush anything and you won't check anything off of, this is not about checking anything off. We've got a lot of things we're doing that are, that are progressive points, but they're not, it's, it hasn't reached that, um, that intimate level where you have made it your signature, you know, you have authenticated and that's where we've got work to do. You know, I'm personally excited about, there's a lot of opportunity here, listening to Shannon talk and Merle as well. There's a lot of opportunity within our company and we've got a smart group of, of people working in little teams. We're trying to do it bit by bit and get going down deeper into our, our workforce and bringing up the, the, the opportunity and the ideas uh, and not force change, but to do it in a very uh, leader-led and employee-driven approach. And that's, I think that's what I heard Shannon say as well, uh, and try to take the, the best things that we can do and, and drive them into the culture of the organization. So we, uh, we, Brian, we have a lot of work ahead of us, but it's, it's, the, it's the right time and, and it's, a, it's a passionate uh, opportunity for, for our company. Um, Myrtle, did you have some comments on that? Sure. Um, I guess I would start with, when you look at the industry overall, and I can't really speak to, you know, the, 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 the gas and the, the, the home delivery end of the business, you know, that Kenneth and Shannon are in, uh, but in the oil services business and the, the big oil and gas companies, you know, um, we, we have the other challenge that goes along with coming to grips with uh, the dealing with police brutality, uh, systemic racism, uh, the historical uh, oppression of Blacks in America. We also have the added uh, stigma of what I've just mentioned before of the oil and gas industry, the fossil fuel industry, and the perception that goes along with being a part of big oil has all come together either because of the realities of the business, of being a traditionally white male business, both in the corporate environment, but even more so out in the field where the work takes place, of being uh, of the, a reputation of not of being hostile towards women, towards blacks and other minority communities. So we already are challenged with those. And then you talk about the cyclical nature of our business. We're already challenged with having the ability to attract and retain talent, uh, talented blacks, talented Hispanics, talented women. So we, once again, we cannot afford to not seize this moment. And what we have been doing through policy and, you know, proactively putting in place policies to deal with uh, discrimination and harassment and hostile work environments. And we have taken those, always taken those measures 
you know, very seriously in incidences that are reported, I can have always been dealt with swiftly and unequivocally, and there's just no middle ground. But right now, that's not enough. You know, it's not enough to have good policies in place. It's not enough to, uh, to, to deal with things, you know, as they come up. You know, we've got to go out and proactively root it out and not just wait for someone to report things. And we've got to um, uh, bring things, I think Shannon said it, mindfully to the forefront, which is, you know, uh, what we are, what we're doing, you know, in a thoughtful manner that's not just reactionary, that's not just, you know, responding to this moment and then, you know, leaving it where it is. And I can tell you in my career, um, it's the first time in my career where after an incident of police brutality has taken place where, you know, an unarmed black man or black woman was killed, where when I got back and where my phone started ringing from getting phone calls from my white colleagues asking me if I was okay. And that had never happened before. It never been a place where it was okay or where we've, I felt okay to bring that pain with me into the workplace and have a conversation about it. Um, so that's the moment that we are in. And I know that other colleagues that I have that are black feel the same way, that they have felt you know, empowered to bring that part of themselves uh, to work and to be able to express that pain and grief in a way that we have not always felt uh, uh, empowered to do. So if we if we work with that and continue to work through that, then you know not only will it make for a better, uh, you know, it, it will make for our company stronger and better, and allow us to you know when you get I, I'm a numbers person. I tell people you know at the end of the day I'm a numbers person. I'm a tax person. And, and it's not that I'm told to put things, you know, into numbers in order to sell my ideas and my proposals. It's just what I do. And to me, the numbers are there. It's not just the way we feel as human beings, but the impact to the bottom of line uh, from, being, from, from addressing these issues, uh, it, 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 can, it can be quantified because you know right now people are coming at my industry because it's an easy sale to say to somebody hey you know i know the halliburton this is your second downturn you guys aren't paying bonuses look at us we're in technology we do this you know we get bonuses every year so we're already under attack you know for that uh and and what a counter what a counter argument would a, a powerful counter argument to that would be yeah, but despite all of that, this is a great place to, great industry to be a part of because of the way it treats its people, uh, the humanity that it, that it displays, whether it is during a pandemic or a hurricane or what have you, this is a good place to be. So we can't just leave this moment and, and, and not, and not, uh, and not capitalize on it. And we're, we're committed to doing that at Halliburton. Okay. Thank you. And, and thank uh, all three of you for your insight on that. Um, 
want to just bring it back full circle before we before we close out. Uh, probably going to run a couple minutes um, over. We started a couple minutes late, um, but wanted to just uh, circle back to to uh, your expectations moving forward from a from a company and infrastructure standpoint um, in terms of infrastructure build outs. Uh, there was t this was touched on a, a bit at the outset, but um, just wondering if you um, if you all see kind of struggles, if you anticipate struggles raising capital in light of strained um, in light of you know strained economics right now, um, and just generally any thoughts on that, um, and and whether whether that is impacting your your infrastructure build out or any other really plans that you have slated. Um, Kenny, can you start? Yeah, we, I mean, we're, as a regulated utility, we have, we've, we've gone through a lot of organizational change at the corporate level. We, we have sold uh, and divested a lot of the non-regulated businesses over the course of the last year. So as, as a corporation, we have become more straight, straight lined in, in regulated assets. We serve eight states. And our investment thesis is pretty consistent across all of our regulated uh, footprints. Uh, and we try to be very consistent in how we make our investments and try to earn what we, what we possibly can within our, with our, uh, our regulatory uh, responsibilities. And so from a financial perspective, we're, we're in a much better place today than probably we were a couple, couple of years ago. Um, we're, we're looking more for stability uh, and sustainability in, in our investments. So we're, we're, you know, we're focused on investments that are going to hit that mark around uh, supporting our needs to serve the, the growth of our services in our service territory, as well as the reliability of our service territory and the resiliency. And um, so to answer your question directly, Brian, we don't have a, 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 a big concern today on the financial uh, need, needs we just had some some big financial uh, change over the last couple of months that's given us a nice uh, head start for the next two to three years. So we have um, uh, a good solid you know, a couple of million dollars, couple of billion dollars per year in investments across all of our service territories, and we're feeling very, uh, very, very positive overall in our investment thesis and our, and our uh, near-term plan. So I think we're we're feeling pretty good, but. But we, you know, we we can't ignore uh, these disruptions that we've talked about today because all of this is this is happening in real time, and it's affecting uh, all of us. We're, we're we're all feeling and experiencing the the difficulties of of what's going on around us. So we're trying to stay in tune with what the real world that's happening to us right now, while while we're also trying to maintain and drive our capital investments for the next couple of years. Gotcha, Shannon. So um, at Southern Company Gas, we have a five-year plan to invest over $8 billion over the course of five years. And that is supported by the regulatory mechanisms that I referred to earlier um, that allow us to um, have infrastructure riders to support um, this investment into our system. However, um, what we can't do is rest there and think that that's it for us. We have to continue to be very proactive in our planning and transparent with our regulators and our legislators around what we see as our emerging needs in the future. And above all things, we have to be able to adapt. 
Um, right now, infrastructure writers are working for us. Uh, we had a period of time where we weren't going in for rate cases. Then we realized we might need to go back and have some rate cases and reset um, certain aspects of our um, rate making model. And so for us, we just have to continue to just be very thoughtful and not look at what's in front of us, but plan for down the road and start to anticipate um, the changes in our environment and in our economy so that we can plan ahead and stay in, in communications with our regulators so that um, they can also help um, us and give input around what they see so that we can have um, a situation where not only are the interest of the company is represented, but also the customers and our state economies where we operate. And, and Myrtle. Yes, um, you know, Halliburton again, you know, we're not a we're not a regulated industry, um, but as far as our finances go, our balance sheet's very strong. Uh, we generally fund all of our capital projects out of free cash flow anyway. Um, and and right now our free cash flow is sufficient for the capital needs that we foresee, especially with, you know, uh, drilling activity down at the levels that they are, um, we, we feel very, we feel, we feel very good about, you know, where we are and we have taken other proactive steps to, uh, protect our balance sheet and to protect our free cash flow. Uh, unfortunately, one of those things was we recently, uh, reduced our, uh, dividend by about 75, 80%. But those are things that we are done that we've done to be proactive to ensure that we uh, are will be able to sustain ourselves uh, through this downturn. So we're, we're, I, we're, financially, we're in good shape. <laughs>